Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty Sessions, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. Please join me as we start liberating dreams one episode at a time. Well, welcome to another session of Liberty Sessions. We're so glad you ladies are here and gentlemen. Every once in a while, we hear from a a fella out there who loves what we're doing. So a shout out to all you guys. We're excited this week to be um, bringing someone all the way from New York uh, to you in your cars, in your homes, wherever you are listening today. Uh, We get the pleasure of hearing from Andrea Weinberg. Hey, Andrea, it's nice to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Virtually, that's right. The power of technology. Hey, Andrea, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your brand, Andy? Sure. So Andy is a collection of handbags and accessories built around an active life. Um, And what makes us very different as well, um, in addition to the features of all of our bags, which I can get into a little bit, Um, is our relentless focus as well on the edgy and timeless aesthetic. So the true visual design of the bags as well. Um, We are an organization committed to being a force of good. And uh, to that end, it's even on the tags on your bags, right? Yeah, that's right. So our mantra is be good to yourself. And that goes to the lifestyle that we aim to support with the bag. So all of our bags are very lightweight and they all transform. Our signature Andy transforms from a tote that is designed to stay on your shoulder to a backpack. It can compact um, and it hooks on your on your luggage. So uh, really a lifestyle of, of movement, of wellness, of enjoying our time here on earth. Um, I love that. And I can't wait to get my hands on one. I'm partial to the silver one and the one that's camo and hot pink. So I I was like, Ooh, I got to go shopping. So I love them, love the design. And it's clear that you've put a lot into that aesthetic. Um, so why don't you tell us before you launched this and before you. you got into kind of the design, um, what did you do before you launched Andy and what led you to starting this business? So at the time that I had the idea for Andy, I was pursuing my MBA and I was also working full time. I did a unique MBA program that also allowed me to travel a lot and I was traveling for work as well. Uh, and And I was really traveling the world, living in New York City, also trying really hard to maintain some semblance of social life. Uh, so I was really living this very high intensity lifestyle. Um, and I had an idea for a handbag. The idea was actually a waterproof cover for another bag. Uh, and after, after I prototyped it, I decided to, I had this lightweight bag and I thought, okay, actually I don't want this to just be a cover. I want this to be my all the time bag. And I spent five years putting all kinds of different snaps and handles and pockets and grips and structure around the bag to support my high intensity lifestyle. And so really Andy is a product of you living the life, needing a bag that you needed and then saying, well, if I need it, there must be an audience out there that needs it as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And when you kind of decided the bag was the thing to do, was it something about fashion or was it something about bags? What was it that led you to create a product? Like you'd graduated with this MBA, you'd traveled the world, was uh, developing a product the thing you wanted to go after or was was it just really a need? I have a need, some other people must have the same need. So interestingly enough, um, I had the need and that's what led me to pursue the initial development of the product. But as soon as I had the idea, working on it led me to new adventures. And so I was on a school trip to China when I had the first prototype made and I had heard that you could get anything made in China. And so (laughs) I took the materials that I had sourced And I worked with a prospective student who was interested in the program that I was doing, which by the way, I highly recommend it was, it's called the cross continent program at Fuqua. 
Um, and uh, this interested student based in China, the, my colleagues were based all over the world. Um, she told me that she really wanted to practice English and would love to accompany me to a market and be my translator um, so that I could talk to someone who could use the tech pack that I had made and the materials that I had brought over and turn it into the first prototype. So that took me outside of the regular um, business school activities that we were doing in Shanghai and took me out on my own into a market, developing a product. Um, and then I got, I got back and I started looking at, okay, how do I make more and how do I put the changes on? And that led me to new interesting people, to people in the in the fashion world that I had never, I would have never connected with otherwise. And it was really the adventure that went into making the product that made me feel that I, ha I had no other choice than to keep this adventure going. Uh, and, so, and so that took me into a business, but my, my business has really been made by seeing what comes next and staying very, very close to the customer uh, who in, in, many, in many senses is me, um, but there are also other uh, different people and lifestyles uh, that that the bag supports as well. Sure, and I'd love to hear because I think m many of us hear those stories about how we kind of heard back from the market and we listened to what the consumer wanted. Can you practically tell us, Andrea, like how did you do that? Did you survey 10 friends? Did you kind of hit the street with a mic and ask people's opinions? What did you do to get that kind of information? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... Initially, I only sold the product to friends and family. That was part of what I consider to be my R&D stage. Uh, I did a market probably five years ago, a little uh, artisan market in, in New York City, and I sold one bag. And I'm pretty sure, and, and the product was like a quarter of the price at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm pretty sure I only sold that bag because this woman <laughs> felt sorry for me. Uh, and that... And that that was good information. And, but I took it back and I thought, I, I looked at it and I looked at it with people that I trusted and I brainstormed what else could I do? Because I was certainly not ready to let the adventure go. Sure. Um, and so I did another round and I did more testing with it. And I, I used it myself relentlessly. Um, other people in my life that I, I felt were the right target. Um, they used the bags relentlessly uh, and and I was constantly getting feedback. I think having friends and family close to the ground who can really use the bag and really give you feedback that that is that is valid, that is proven, and not just um, you know someone off the street is going to I think just give you something off the cuff that isn't necessarily well thought out. Sure. Um, so I think that that having friends and family and also most of the feedback really came from myself as well using the bags. Um, but otherwise, like I said, doing the market and then doing trunk shows. So as I would refine, I would do more and more trunk shows. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting way to get in touch with customers. And it's not even conversations. It's what are they, what are they drawn to? Do they touch the bag? Do they walk right by it? Who are the people that are looking at it? It's, it's real-time research that I think is very, very valuable. It's, it's tough because... Your product is, for me, my product is in a way an expression of me. It's um, sure. it's my work product. It's what I've put my, truly like my blood, sweat and tears into. Um, and so I do feel very vulnerable showing the product. Uh, but I think also actively making yourself aware of the fact that it's not, it's not personal um, and developing a thick skin there. Uh, is really important going into something, going into any business, any startup. I don't know any startup that has been successful without a founder putting everything they have into it. So um, I think that's to be very, very common. And, and I told myself, you know, I, none of this is going to be insulting to me. Like if you, if you told me, uh, I, I can think of a few insults that would probably cut me, <laughs> um, but I did make a, a pact with myself and I still work on it to, to keep a distance between myself and how I feel about myself um, and, and doing things just for myself and not always for the company. Um, and also uh, knowing that what's a reflection on Andy isn't a reflection on me. 
That's good. And that's, that's actually great advice for all of our listeners. There's two things that you said that I really want to go back to because I think they were really key. One is when I asked about how you uh, got your research, you talked about going to friends and family, but you said something, and I, I'm not sure if I'm going to get the exact word, but you said, I gave it to people who would use it or you targeted who you were giving it to. And I think that's really important in getting feedback that often in the early stages, we'll just give our story or our idea to anyone who will listen. And then we take in all the feedback, regardless of who they are, or if they're really qualified to give us feedback, are they in fact the target audience? And when you said that, I thought, okay, that's a really key point that we need to make sure we're getting information back from people who are ultimately the user, the person we want to sell to, the target audience, the demographic that we're, we're really trying to hit up. And I thought that was, that was key. The other thing is um, you talked about kind of the nonverbal feedback that you were getting when you did the trunk shows and how you really paid attention to what colors were people approaching, you know, in terms of having all the bags sitting out there? Um, what were they, what were they wearing? What was the bag that they had on them when they came in? Really paying attention to those key things that would help you identify if they were in fact your target and also maybe make some decisions about how you were to market the brand or change the bag itself based on who they were. Is that, did I capture that? That's exactly right. And I, I do think there are other things you learn, um, putting yourself out there right in front of customers. And it's not always just about the product. I think it's about customer shopping habits in general. And that is constantly evolving, of course. Sure. But one thing I noticed was if I, if there was one person talking to me, I was so much more likely to get other people to come and talk to me and look at the bags. And if one person was like, oh, I'm getting it. It was like everyone around them were, they, they were like, I'm getting it too. Um, so I, that was, that was really interesting for me as well. I haven't incorporated it yet, but I do think it would be strategic to have like a, a planted shopper. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. I was like, hmm, <laughs> I have an idea for another business. Planted shoppers are us. Yeah. <laughs> we could sell them. Um, there you go. Not people. We're not, we're not advocating that we should sell people in any way. Let me just back <laughs> up on that. Um, one thing, when you talked about your MBA, I just wanted to ask you a question. A lot of people go into getting a business degree. And I'm curious, did you want to be an entrepreneur or did you think you would go more kind of the corporate trajectory with this master's in business? What was the intention? Um, gosh, I guess my answers are pretty consistent here. I, the intention was I was just ready for the next adventure mm -hmm. and business school seemed like the right fit for me. I've always been very interested in business. I have always thought about entrepreneurship and it does run in my family uh, in different ways. I think I've, yeah, I've always loved business in general. And, but that said, I, I guess I did have a vision in my mind going into business school that I would, I would come out on the other side and be a consultant, um, which is absolutely not what I am. Yeah. And I know it's, it's very hard, very respectable in many ways, very awesome work. Just, I, I had a talk with a friend coming out of business school when I was like, you know, I'm, I'm setting up these interviews. Some of them I'm getting, some of them I'm not. Is this, is this the path for me? And he was like, do no. <laughs> he was like, he was like, look at this person. Like she's perfect for that. He was like, and she, you know, this is her background. He was like, you've developed the handy bag. He was like, this is, this is what you should be doing. You think outside of the box, you, you are meant to pursue something else. And I was like, okay, that feels right. Yeah. Um, and, and my background was in sales, uh, which I, I had always had, um, a unique way of, of selling, um, and really kind of embraced what was different about me, um, in my efforts to sell, uh, instead of, which was very different from the typical profile of, uh, my colleagues as well, who are in sales of actually litigation technology services, mm -hmm. um, which <laughs> I could get into if you want to, but I think we should just take it face value that it's like very corporate, um, very, most people are wearing suits, uh, which is very different from the active fashion world, of course. 
Um, we will leave it at that and we won't delve too much into <laughs> litigation technology. But one thing I think is important is you talked about your sales and background and how much do you think that prior career has played into your sort of entrepreneurial role or your CEO role now? I think sales, sales is the most critical piece of any business. Uh, and I'm not saying necessarily a salesperson is the most critical person in any business, but a business can't exist without sales. So having that background and most importantly, um, when I got into that industry, um, I had no idea what I was doing and I was completely scared. I had also just moved to New York and I had no choice but to go to networking events with people who I'd never met before, who were much older than me, uh, and far more sophisticated in litigation technology. But uh, I developed a strategy where I would go and I would speak to the person who intimidated me the least for whatever reason. And slowly but surely, I really worked my way up. I became very good friends with very influential people in that industry. In fact, if you go to litigation technology events today, many people are wearing Andy bags. Um, I love it. <laughs> but I think having developing the confidence to really take on something new and understand that no matter who they are, people are people. And especially if they're outside of their homes and possibly the gym, they want to be approached. And so um, really just honing the ability to connect with all kinds of different people has made such a huge difference for me in this because I've, instead of, you know, just talking to litigation technology buyers, I'm now speaking to manufacturers and suppliers and potential employees and CEOs who I want to collaborate with and of course buyers. Uh, And so having that ability to connect and understand that we're all people uh, is is a skill that is not only serving me, of course, uh, in this business, but in my, it serves me in my everyday life. Um, thank you for both describing how that, uh, informed your present career, but also for giving us kind of, I think, um, the foundation of sales and making it so approachable and non-intimidating. And so you've already given us advice before we've even gotten to the advice section. So that's, there's a little (laughs) freebie for all you guys. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, I mean, you talked about the prototyping process. You talked about for five years adding, um, you know, snaps and enclosures and handles and various things to the bag before you got it to where it is today. Tell us about that manufacturing process. And it sounds like you didn't have any experience before you did that first prototype. Is that correct? That's correct. I I had no experience uh, manufacturing any product whatsoever. But what I did have was a mentor. My friend Ian Velarde had a line of clothing uh, that he had just started. He had gotten uh, laid off in uh, the downturn. The, the company that he worked for had completely closed down. And he developed his own line of high-end super chic hats. Uh, so he was very well-versed in the fashion industry and in, in making products and getting them made from 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 zero. So I would go to him and I would say, all right, I, I went to him with this idea. I said, I have this idea for a bag. What do I do next? How do I get it made? And he said, you need a pattern maker. Uh, he said, you could look for one of those at like FIT or Parsons. So I, I put up an ad and I found someone to make a pattern for me. Uh, and I uh, sourced the materials, these kind of outdoor materials from a place in Idaho. Uh, so I, I went to China on a school trip. So um, after I had the initial prototype made, the next, the next question was, okay, so, so what do I do next? I'm, I'm back in the U.S. and I knew that I wanted to make them in small batches. And I also wanted to make them in a way that, that I had a resource where I could make changes as necessary. Uh, I didn't really know anyone in manufacturing, but I asked around and my ex-boyfriend's family was friends with a man named Morris Goldfarb, who is the CEO of a very large 
apparel company and he agreed to take a meeting with me. So I went in and I, I sat across from him. I was still wearing a suit at the time. Uh, and I had my, my two prototypes in front of me and I was like, these are great. They're going to be the next big thing. Any chance you want to help me? And he said, look, I've, I've helped someone before in this situation and I, it took so much of my time that I know there's no way that I can help you right now. But what I will do is I will introduce you to her. And perhaps since I helped her when she was starting, she will help you. So he put me in touch with her. Uh, I, I went and met with her and she was like, look, all I can do right now is I can give you this, the name and number of this guy who might be able to help you. And so I, I then called that guy. I think his name was Louis Salazar. Um, I called Louis and Louis was like, oh, I can't really help you right now, but <laughs> I'll give you the, the name of my cousin who's in the garment district and he might be able to help you. So I, I called his cousin in the garment district who was super nice, but also was like, I, I, I don't think I can help you. Uh, I'm, I'm still doing things that are a larger quantity than what you're looking at right now. But he referred me to a guy named Pablo who owned a factory in Brooklyn, which is the factory that I worked with um, really from to, to take Andy from the prototype that it was shortly after I got back from China that when the first one was made uh, to just about what it is now. Wow. Um, and that was just, yeah. So five years, I loved them. I loved all of the guys in that factory. I loved all of the workers. Um, they, I mean, Pablo would give me life advice. Uh, so we worked very closely together making small batches. I would just buy different colors and trims and I would make custom bags for my friends um, and for, for people that I would meet at trunk shows. And they, they did really small batch work for me. Um, Manufacturing since then, um, I eventually moved to a bigger factory in New Jersey, uh, and that was that was an interesting experience for me. That was I, I have a lot of thoughts on manufacturing. Uh, we could really probably have uh, <laughs> a whole, a whole podcast. This, oh, okay, we'll do it. I, we'll do that. Okay, yeah. Um, so I at, at that time. Um, I, because the bag has so many moving parts, there are snaps, there are hooks, there are circle clips, there are sliders, I can go on and on, but there's so many different trims. And so sourcing became a huge challenge for me because they all, all to get the exact part that I wanted, I was using 12 different suppliers just to make one bag. And, um, the factories that I found in the U.S. just didn't have the capabilities to coordinate that part of the process for me. Uh, so, so what I ended up doing was looking abroad. Uh, I, I did, I did explore manufacturing in China, but where we've really found a home is in Taiwan, and uh, that has been. I, I, we'll get into more of the manufacturing and looking for a factory, um, but. Just, again, going through the adventure and just seeing what happens next. I still have a very close relationship with the factory in Brooklyn, and they still do work for us as well. Um, it, it just depends on, on what needs to be done. But, but having that really solid relationship uh, with that factory, and, and it, it has saved us on so many occasions when we need to turn something quick or add a little something here. Uh, and and I've, I've really looked to build that same relationship with the next partner. And I'm really, really proud to say that we've done that. And we have an awesome relationship with our factory in Taiwan. They are wonderful people. I've met their family. I've met the grandparents, the children, and, uh, and we'll get into further kind of what to look for in a factory. Uh, but again, the manufacturing experience, finding a way to have something made, uh, it's, it's just an adventure. And I, I think we can't really look at it in any other way because it's, not easy. Yeah, no, I can't imagine. And it's such an integral part of the business. So it's sort of um, being aware of the process, knowing what to ask about, knowing uh, when you insert yourself and sort of make demands on how things need to uh, change or be different as it relates to your product. And also knowing when you need to trust the manufacturer and that they know that, you know, this is how this process works and this is what's best. This is how these two materials work together or need to be sewn together or whatever. I'm sure it's a learning process and like any relationship need to build that trust. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I also do believe that being so close to the manufacturing process from the beginning and doing all of that hard sourcing work myself, that has helped me so much grow and scale. I think whenever we know exactly how things are done ourselves, it's so much easier to actually hand it off because when something goes wrong, it's not like you're searching for something in a black box. You know exactly what went wrong because you've done it already. That's, uh, again, that's a great tip. And um, uh, in advance of being in that section of the interview, you've offered up something else that I think is super valuable. Just having gone through the process, being really close to um, kind of following from step A all the way to Z so that as things happen, as things go wrong or even go right, you know how how those things work together and where you need to sort of stop or start production and interface and say, this is where we need to sort of interrupt this process or, or um, expand or um, change things up for whatever reason. I'm going to ask one question and maybe in just a quick sentence, can you tell me why and tell us why it was so important that you in the early days found a manufacturer who could do small batches? Because you talked about that a lot before you moved on to Taiwan and were able to do um, uh, kind of bigger orders. What was so important about finding somebody who could do small a small batch order aside from the obvious, which is the amount of money that you were spending? Yeah. So what was so important was that I was still, and I knew that I was still very much in in an R&D phase, in, in researching and developing product. And I, I wanted to be in that phase until I really felt that I had something very, very, very strong. And because the product is not, it's not just about how it looks, but also about how it works. Um, I, I wanted a factory that I could work closely with to use, to make the design, use the design, then refine the design and do it all over again. Got it. That's awesome. And again, for those of us who are thinking about going into manufacturing, it's super um, helpful and validating to hear that this is part of the process, creating small batches, getting them out on the street, getting people to try them, sampling these pieces so you understand what you need to change and reinforce and you know make better in any way. So helpful to have you state that as, as an actual fact in the manufacturing process. I want to move on to something really quickly. Um, we've heard a lot of manufacturers, you know, product-based brands who are really splitting their energies between wholesale and direct sales. So retailing their products themselves, whether that's in their own brick and mortar or on their website. By percentage, generally speaking, how have you decided to split those efforts and why? So originally, I would say we focused, or I should say I focused. I love referring to the company as we, mm-hmm. because it does feel like it's a whole other thing. Um, and now it, it is a we, but back then it was me. <laughs> uh, I, I focused. At the beginning, in the trunk show R&D phase, it was definitely just on the end customer. And then when I really launched the business, it was a 75-25 split with 75% being focused on wholesale because that was the the fastest way to get it out. And, And also truly because I was quickly getting traction from wholesalers. Uh, or I should say from retailers where, where I was doing wholesale. Sure. Um, that said now it's definitely 50, 50. Uh, we, Andy is, uh, totally it's, we don't have a uh, big funding. Um, so that's another reason why we were doing small batches. We've, we've grown organically. Um, and so I, I didn't have a, a tremendous amount of capital to invest in marketing and in, uh, building like this big, amazing website. And so uh, we, I went ahead with, with wholesale, which also drove press and uh, established some brand equity as well. I think if certain, um, if certain stores are, are going to put their name on you, meaning they're going to carry your product there, sure. it gives your brand some cachet right then and there. That said, I think that there's something really cool happening with consumers 
right now. And I think brands take on something much bigger than just the product that they make. It's And it's great because it's also what you stand behind, how you manufacture. People, I think, want to know every little bit of your story. They want to know behind it. They want to know how it's made, where it's made. Um, they they want to know what it's all about. What does it stand for? Whereas I think in the past, what made a cool brand was that, I hate to say it, was that it was expensive. Um, and we didn't really know like so much about what was behind the brand. Uh, I think now, I believe a customer is someone who follows us on Instagram. And I think there are brands that I, even if I haven't bought anything from them yet, I feel like I'm a part of them in a way because I know what they're about and I see what they're up to. So I think we're in this really cool time where people can be customers and that they're a part of your culture and they know who you are and they, they know what you're doing. And maybe they're even spreading the word about you even if they're not yet customers. Yeah, I think so, that's... So I am really focusing... Yeah, yeah, it's it's so cool. It's it's so unusual, but I think it's so necessary when we're really trying to... I do think there is a movement that we're all in this together. We have a world to protect. We have each other to protect. Let's do things right. And that goes to how we take care of the people that work for us and the people that we work with, our, our vendors... Uh, and and what materials we use and what we what we do for our customers, how we take care of our customers, and and the lifestyle that we promote. Yeah. So um, so that's something we're really working on now. And and I will say that having a great wholesale presence definitely drives customers to our website, and and we want to be there because that's really our opportunity to tell our story and talk about what Andy is about. And I think it is the customers that we have had some direct contact with, even if it is just through a newsletter or the people who have taken time to read the inserts that we put into the bags, they will get the most out of their bags. Yeah. Uh, they will use them in all of the different ways they can use them, some of which aren't obvious. Uh, and and they're more likely to love their Andy and they're more likely to then talk about their Andy and, and spread the good word. So so right now it's very much a 50-50 split. Um, Wholesale is, people say uh, wholesale is, is dying or, you know, retail is brick and mortar. That's dying. It's not dying. I think it's just really, really changing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's um, reinventing itself. And I want to point out something really important that you mm -hmm. said when you talked about your growth was organic and there wasn't, there weren't these large infusion, or there was not a large infusion of cash, that the wholesale in essence, became a marketing uh, opportunity for you guys to get Andy out into all those retailers' hands that did have uh, market share became a way for you to distribute the brand, not just the product. And then once people saw it, they could, you know, that could drive sales to drive traffic to the website. So I think it's important to always still consider the role that wholesale plays into a product brand's uh, business. And with regard to direct sale, again, I completely agree that consumers want the lifestyle of the brand. They're not just looking for how the brand um, or how the product fits a need. They want to understand how the brand fits into their lifestyle. And uh, so thanks for, for sharing that and making that distinction because I think it's really important that we all consider that as we look at growing our own brands and to that end, you also sh shared this idea that even brands that we haven't purchased, we may be a part of their customer base or their tribe because we follow them on Instagram or whatever. And I think it's important for us to start treating people who haven't purchased but have come to our website, have come to our Instagram, have you know listened to our podcast, have come to um, a, a, a trunk show again, even if they haven't purchased, they're investing their time in who uh, we are and getting to know who we are. And so we need to treat them like customers. And I think that's something that's new. That's not something that it's been part of the sales funnel in the past, but today we treat them more and more like customers, even without their dollars. And that's, that's imp an important distinction. So thanks for bringing that up. I wanted to ask really quickly, what's next for Andy? Like, can we expect to see other verticals in the near future? You've got all this great 
product um, in terms of the raw goods that you're using? Can you imagine using it beyond a bag or can you imagine that Andy would be uh, a brand with multiple uh, items to, to share with its customer base or what do you think the future is? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, so still right now, the majority of the development focus at Andy is on... Uh, I, I, it's always a work in progress and I think everything can always be better. Um, so continuing to refine our, our products now to be as great as they can be. That said, we are working on a few tweaks to our standard um, silhouettes to better suit specific customer segments. So we do have a baby bag or a diaper bag or a mommy bag, whatever you want to call it. Um, that is in the works, uh, which we're very excited about. Um, also, really big into hands-free. Again, we're, we're bags for the active life. So, uh, so excited to see fanny packs all over New York City. Uh, we have, and you know, part of, part of our model is, you know, this can be a backpack but you don't have to commit to it being a backpack and it's a tote, but you don't have to commit to it being a tote because it turns into a backpack and it turns into a little duffel or a clutch or whatever you need it to be um, with, within limits. Um, and so we, we have this fanny pack that we've recently refined, uh, but of course you can wear it as a crossbody. It expands. So that is hitting the market right now. It's called the Andy Go. I, am, I have a, a designer that recently came on board, a train designer, who we've been working very closely on this and we have, we have, I hate the word perfect, but we can use perfected uh, it to a point that it's, it's like changing my life. I love it so much. Um, <laughs> and then a little further down the line, I, <laughs> I do one day hope to have a line of hoodies. I just, there just it is. I love hoodies. There's I think that there's next so much thing. that can be done with them. But okay. yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we'll, we will look forward to our Andy hoodie. So, um, Andrea, I'm going to move us along to the second part of the interview where we sort of try and squeeze out all the goods in that brain of yours and just really get you to pass along um, some information that you have to share with those of us who are looking to launch or even are in the early growth stages of our own businesses. Um Specifically, what strikes me with Andy is there's no shortage of handbags in the market, and yet you have found a really strong customer base. We talked earlier about you using um, your retailers to expand your brand, and you're in some pretty impressive stores, Saks Fifth Avenue, uh, Equinox, Four Seasons Gift Shops, and the list goes on. What's your advice for women who are looking to start a brand in a market that's seemingly oversaturated? My advice there is there, I would say there still needs to be some kind of a differentiator, something that makes what you're doing different and valuable. And be very good at communicating what that is to the end customer. And I think the critical part of being good at communicating that to the end customer is finding the end customer and talk, talking to them, getting their feedback. It's kind of what we went through earlier, but just, just getting that word of what does make you different, even though, of course, you know, there are a bajillion leggings company companies on the market, um, but there are still new ones coming out and they are doing different things. Maybe it's the look, maybe it's um, secret pockets, uh, but I think it, it's really honing in on what makes you different. Yeah. See, speaking of secret pockets, we did an interview with a brand graced by grit and it's active wear, um, athleisure wear. And I mean, aside from the awesome material that they're using, they literally have a whistle in a back pocket so that when runners are out at night or whatever, they can always use it to keep themselves safe. So it's amazing how you can really create that distinction um, when you really understand what your customer needs. Oh, I'm a runner. My job actually dropped when you said that. That's fantastic. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> yeah. Check them out. They're awesome. Um, okay. So, we talked about manufacturing a little bit and you went, took us through your process and how many people, and I was actually really impressed, not just with how many uh, different people you were connected to, but that you remembered all their names. So um, good for you. That says a lot about <laughs> who you are. Um, for those of us new to manufacturing who really don't understand that process, you were able to enlighten us a little bit on 
ask around and kind of just go from the, you know, this little bit of advice to this little nugget to this little bit. And eventually you'll get to the person you need to be talking to. But what are maybe just share one of the lessons you've learned along the way um, that you think could really have an impact as um, our listeners go out um, and try and start this process for, for themselves? Something maybe that you'd like to warn them about or an anecdote that you think, gosh, I'm so glad that happened. It really expedited my own process. Yeah. Um, in general, I think finding a manufacturer that is a great communicator and that really believes in what you're doing so much so that they're willing to kind of look out for you a little bit and say, oh, you can add this here or maybe don't do that there. I think that's, that's very valuable, uh, especially for somebody new. Having a manufacturer that, that's consultative uh, I think is extremely valuable. Specifically though, my advice is to, when you're working with a new manufacturer, be as specific as possible, be as detailed as possible. You, I don't think you could be too detailed in what you're asking for. I ran into um, a bit of an issue when I first um, went offshore for manufacturing and I was like, the quality needs to be great, the best. And then I got some fabrics in that I was like, wait, what is this? And that, that doesn't necessarily mean anything in the manufacturing world. Like great, the best, perfect. Those are yeah. not descriptive. What they need to know is what denier, what are the tests that it needs to pass? Um, that's, that's what I, what I would recommend being specific about. Um, any little detail, like this has to be stitched exactly here, cannot be stitched here, must be in this manner. And I think leave room for them to provide some suggestions because hopefully they do understand manufacturing better than you do. But again, I just, I can't emphasize enough being very, very detailed and very, very, very specific. And it sounds like your ability to even do that comes with the experience of having done that. You wouldn't even know that language existed um, unless you had gone through that process. So do these things, but also, and by the way, there's no real shortcut. You got to kind of go through this process or hire some people that have gone through this process to, to walk you along the way. That's right. Yeah. When it comes to manufacturing, based on the people that we've interviewed, it seems like one of the things that it, had they all had one person who sort of could come in and speak very specifically to that manufacturer in manufacturing language um, that could have really changed the the game for them just in terms of maybe, you know, one or two runs that could have been saved or or the money could have been saved or whatever. But it seems as though everyone always talks about how the learning curve has been so important and so valuable. So, Perhaps again, that's it's just something you've got to walk through. I think I think that's right. I think for every mistake I've made in manufacturing, there are there's a time later when I have I take a lesson that I specifically learned from that mistake, and I just think I'm so glad that happened then in a small in a much smaller way because it's yeah. preventing it from happening right now. I, I see it right now and it's not going to happen here. Which brings us full circle to why those small batches were so important early on. Um, when you talked about the importance of really creating them to save money, to save energy, to really better understand where the product needed to be improved. Um, so we're huge fans around here of tips and resources, apps, anything that can help us to navigate our busy schedules and our working, our, our, I'm sorry, our growing workload. Um, can you share some things that you have found to be helpful? It sounds like with your travels and all of your uh, navigating of your busy life that you probably come across one or two things. Anything in particular? I have a couple. So oh, first good. for travel, <laughs> yeah. and this is you know whether you're traveling for work or, or enjoyment, uh, there is an app called Hopper, H-O-P-P-E-R. And I appreciate that because you can put in the dates that you're planning to travel and it tells you like, oh, wait, these prices will go lower or you should book right now. These are probably the best prices you're going to get. What the difference would be for nonstop versus uh, multi-stop trip. Uh, so, so I really like that. For travel, I found it to be useful. Um, we recently, so now that the Andy team has grown, uh, it, it's 
it, it became very apparent that we needed a better way to collaborate as a team. Uh, so we're now using Asana and everyone loves it. <laughs> yes, we've heard. I highly recommend Asana for collaboration. Um, Are you guys using it? Have we, you already heard this from well, everybody? So Elizabeth is laughing because she's using it and Trish is using it, but I'm not using it. But that's not because I don't think it's super valuable. I think it's because I don't really know what I'm doing yet and I'm trying to use it. I'm, I'm trying to wait for a, tr- a tutorial so I can use it well. Is that cheating? I'm not Meta, sure. you're going to love it. <laughs> You've, okay, okay. You're, you're, pu- you're pushing me over the top. Okay. Yeah, you just got to dive right in. Just download the app and like it'll start popping up and... And oh, it's popping I up. I also think sit down with somebody who knows it and say, here's what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just fitting it oh, into okay. my, okay. yeah, it's popping up. No, it's, but you're right. It's just got to fit into my lifestyle, but we've heard so many people use it. And it's one that I think with consistency, maybe one person has said that they preferred something else, but with consistency, people have really enjoyed Asana. So Asana, we're coming after you for sponsorship dollars. Hang tight. Okay. What are some other things that you can recommend? So when I first started, you know, when I was, when I started out and I was shipping maybe like one bag a week or like sometimes even like one bag every two weeks, I was just, you know, getting the address and typing it into FedEx myself. But then as we grew, so we recently moved to a fulfillment center uh, where now orders go directly to the warehouse and they pack and ship for us. That was a huge move for us. That was really really a difficult one. We definitely should have done it much earlier, but regardless, in the meantime, a bridge that I found that saved so much time, and I actually still have it activated because I really like the reports, is called ShipStation. So that made a huge difference for me in that I no longer had to like manually create the packing slips and the FedEx labels. So I highly recommend ShipStation. And for everyone listening, we will have everything that Andrea is recommending uh, listed in the show notes on the website. So if you're not, if you're driving and you're not able to stop and get notes, no worries. Just go to libertyforher.com and everything will be listed. Okay, Andrea, I, I cut you off. Go ahead. More resources, please. So Asana and ShipStation are the ones that um, came to my mind. Of course, I live in die by my Outlook calendar, which my guess is most people listening to this do as well. Um, So I won't mention that one. I will say delegation is a life hack that I am still really, really working on. I I think for many um, entrepreneurs that started out as solopreneurs, that's, that's a tough one. And it's, um, it's a combination of things. I think, I think it's hard to get out of your own head Um, it's hard to transfer from, or excuse me, transition from having everything live in your head and acting on that to having to communicate everything to someone else. And so I think it's, it's, and some of it's control obviously too, but it's not necessarily all control as I've heard people, as I've experienced it myself, I think it's, it, it comes from a number of different things that are kind of pulling and tugging at you. And it's also, uh, seems to be very normal. It's a very normal process, but one that deserves some time and, and, um, some energy to get over and really start to learn how to delegate so that you can move forward. That was really helpful, actually. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. I'm so glad I could be of assistance. <laughs> it's true. I'm, I'm not just a control freak. You're right. A lot of it is that there's so much in my head and I haven't fully gotten it out yet. And operating originally as a solopreneur, solo yeah. I like that term. Yeah. Um, I, I was so used to just, you know, having it there when I needed it, I could access it. And yeah. so uh, we needed it better better way to just like get our brains exported and so everyone can just access it whenever they want. That's right. And Asana is idea. here to help you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Our, our business number two or three, I think now. <laughs> um, so you have gotten some really great press and uh, it's obvious from looking at your website and just seeing the Andy bag out there. I That's how I heard about you. Uh, do you recommend hiring a publicist early on or were you sort of DIYing yourself into the hearts of editors um, and bootstrapping for the, for the early years? So actually my, my recommendation there is to DIY, if you can, getting some traction in sales. 
I think that that is the easiest way to get some press is to get people out and about wearing, wearing your product uh, and also getting your product in retailers. That said, I would say this would be my advice with anyone who, who joins your startup. Hire someone who really believes in what you're doing. And in the case of a publicist, someone who is just chomping at the bit to talk about it. For me, um, I, I do have uh, about a year ago, um, uh, someone who came on to do PR. She happens to be one of my very best friends, best friends. And we met at his wedding and hit it off immediately. And she was like, I, I, I'm going to do this. And I was like, okay, great. And she <laughs> certainly um, talked about it in a way that has gotten us even more attention. Uh, so so I think it's about finding the right fit. She has said to me many times um, that new brands or new companies should be very careful to not look to PR to bring in sales, but instead uh, use PR to enhance the sales you've already gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you are looking at PR as your be all end all to bring in sales, it's, it's going to be a tough one. Uh, that said, you know, a product that is more than CI, it just, I, I do think it's important to have some press out there and really raise that brand awareness for what your, your product or your company is about. Okay. That's so sorry. I realize that's not a very direct answer. No, I think it's, I think it's, helpful. I think it's good for people to hear that it's not necessary to go out and hire a publicist right away that you can't, there is something as DIY publicity that whether it's writing your own release and trying to get it into the hands of editors at, you know, traditional um, established magazines or bloggers or Instagrammers, you know, anybody who has an influence and an audience, um, that it is something that you can do on your own. I also think you made a great distinction in saying that it's to enhance the brand and to maybe capture that that person that we said was part of your tribe, but not necessarily your customer. So really making a distinction between how do I get more people to pay attention to me, but not necessarily riding the, the PR train um, in hopes of arriving at sales. Like that's not, that's not how you get there. It's, it's, it's to enhance the brand. So I think that's really helpful for our listeners. Thank you for that. So another thing that is really obvious about your brand and we can see it in your website in particular is how seriously you take your social responsibility. Um, You've made it an integral part of the Andy brand. Um, How do you recommend that every woman who is launching a business, who has an existing business, um, find a cause to support? Or, or do you recommend it? I guess I'm sort of recommending it. So I'm asking you, how do you recommend it? So do you find something that is uh, you know, aligned with what you're selling? Do you find something that's aligned with your core values? Like, Why is it so important for us to do that? I think with social responsibility, uh, the idea there is to... With any organization, um, I think it's so important for the founder to really find meaning in that. And so for me, uh, our social impact work, the fact that we are able to, A, what do we have at our disposal? I know Starbucks, for example, and I'm totally inspired by the fact that they have cups and water and bathrooms. And so that's something that they provide to the entire community. Anyone can go into a Starbucks and get a cup of water or a bathroom. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful. I think uh, with Andy, we here and there, we're able to donate bags to women who need them. And uh, we, since we use different materials, we aim to make those eco-friendly and we aim to incorporate ethical standards into our manufacturing and everybody that we work with. Um, and and that's, that gives me meaning uh, to what I'm doing, knowing that this is an organization for good, promoting wellness, uh, promoting ethical standards and um, sustainability. But I think what's so important for any founder is to just have meaning in what they're doing. And so if social impact helps you to do that, that's awesome. But I think if you're satisfied by simply making something that is beautiful, and perhaps that thing that's beautiful makes the people who wear it feel beautiful. I think that that's enough. I think that Mm. we shouldn't incorporate social impact just to have it. Uh, If that 
perhaps inhibits your ability to create something that is truly beautiful, um, then then perhaps it's taking away from from what you're actually doing and what you're actually giving. So the core tenet here for me is to have something that is meaningful, to be doing work that is meaningful. I love that. And I love the freedom that you've just given all of our listeners to create, to, to, to believe that the product that they're creating, the service that they're providing is enough. And while um, I'm a huge advocate of giving back and serving your community, I think you're absolutely right that that doesn't need to be apart from your brand. That can be um, born into the fabric of your brand or woven into the fabric of your brand. So thank you for that. Again, I think there, there you gave us sort of permission to not have an add-on social um, enterprise just for the sake of it but to do it because it's something that's important to us or, as you said, adds meaning. Thanks uh, so much for that, Andrea. I appreciate it. Um, you're just full of it today. Yeah. You're just full of it. <laughs> um, so what... I mean, I'll take it. <laughs> um, what parting entrepreneurial advice do you have for our listeners? These are all um, women and, like we said, some men who are launching, they're in the ideation process, they're thinking about something that they want to do, maybe they're years into their business and they're looking for other revenue streams or just to be invigorated by another person's story. What's a piece of advice that you would love to share with these people? I think that the piece of advice that I I most want to share is that everyone is going to give you an opinion. I think, and everyone, I believe in, in the startup world, when you just have an idea or you're in the early stages, everyone just wants to give you an opinion. I don't, I don't know why exactly, even if they're an expert, if they're not, probably because they love you and they want to help. Um, but my advice is to be very careful about listening to everyone's opinions because what you will find when you get enough of them is that they start to conflict. Uh, so, so instead what I would do is find people who you really trust who in some way or another you consider to be an expert, either an expert in, for example, manufacturing or an expert at being your target customer. Maybe they're exactly the customer you're going for. I would, I would place extra value on those opinions and be very careful about, um, putting too much weight on, on all of the other opinions that you were, will definitely be getting. That's great advice. It's sort of like uh, dating advice. Like you don't need the opinion of every single person um, who should be, you know, the um, the guy or gal you should marry. Like you really just need uh, the opinion of a few people that really, really matter. So um, here at Liberty Sessions, we like to have both dating advice and entrepreneurial advice for all of our listeners. <laughs> It's a two in one kind of show. Um, no, there's so many parallels. I know. Yeah, I know. There's so many parallels. There truly are. Okay, so we're going to switch things up in this last little section. It's what we call our quick six. And I'm going to ask you six questions. And I just want you to really, like, in a quick word or sentence, tell us um, what comes to mind. So are you ready? I am. Okay. That said, I read the section ahead of time and I have the same answer for all of these, at least the first five. Okay. Yeah. We'll just see what comes out and we're, it's going to, you're going to rock it. I can't wait. Okay. So question number one, um, do you prefer a nine to five or a flex schedule? You got to have both. So I think you need structure and you need a separation between work time and play time, but also a flex schedule is critical. Okay. Um, I agree. We're not, we won't get into that. We'll just let everyone, um, make, make sense of that themselves. Um, when you're vacationing, do you prefer <laughs> the mountains or the beach? You got to make, I got to mix it up. Like when I visualize my happy place. Uh-huh. It's 50% in the mountains and 50% at the beach. At the same time or or you're in one or the other place? Well, there was one time that I was in Rio de Janeiro and okay. at that time I was in both. But <laughs> okay. most of the time um, in, in one or the other. Okay. And then your ideal work situation, is it 
from home or is it an office? <laughs> You're going to kill me. My, I'm I not. did work from home. I have an awesome home office. I've worked from home, gosh, even starting in litigation technology. But I think it is so important to have an office to go into. And so the structure at, at Andy is everybody works from home, but we have a communal office that everyone comes into for meetings, um, for powwows. Sometimes people just come in here by themselves because it's a lovely place to be. So, so a little bit of both. Okay. Um, the nice thing about your answers is people get a little, they get to know a little bit more about you, but I think they also can see themselves in those answers and say, I'm not one or the other. Oh no. Well, Andy is now giving them permission for that. So thanks <laughs> for that. Okay. Um, would you rather work alone or work with a team? Oh, well, when you work alone, you can work in your pajamas or your underwear mm-hmm. or totally naked. So that's awesome. But working with the team, I really crave social interaction. So, um, and, and I think the best things, uh, can come out of working together, like our new fanny pack, the Andy Go. Um, so I really, that's, this is another one. It, it's a hybrid. I think it's important to have your alone time. That's when I can focus the best. Um, but also having like a core team to move things along yeah. um, is, is invaluable. Agreed. Um, I can honestly say I've never worked naked, but I do appreciate my uh, working alone time. And um, and yet a team, as as one of our podcast interviewer interviewees said so well, that you, you sort of end at one point and it's important to have other people to help kind of carry the vision beyond your abilities, your capacity, even your 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 vision. And often as the visionaries, we don't we don't think of it that way. And I think it is important to think of it yeah. that way. Um, okay. This is a toughie and you're not a Californian. So I'm so curious how you're going to answer this Thai or Mexican food. Yeah. I'm not choosing on one of these either. <laughs> I love them both. Um, <laughs> I was just going to say, I mentioned earlier that I, uh, recently started exploring veganism. And what I really appreciate about both Thai and Mexican is that there are great vegan options. So I really, I, I frequent them both quite often. Well, we will accept your answer um, on the premise that both make for good vegan dishes. Well, we will take that. How's that? Thank you. You're very welcome. Okay. And then this one, it kind of to bring it all home. Obviously, the name of our podcast is Liberty Sessions and the name of our company and our brand is Liberty. And it is uh, very intentional. It's our hope that through entrepreneurship and through women really kind of seeking out their calling and answering that call that they can find um, some form of liberation, that they can be free to to do what they uh, feel moved, called, and equipped to do. What does it mean for you, Andrea, to be liberated? So on one hand, I want to say to never have to make choices between mountains or beach or tire Mexican. Um, Touche. <laughs> but, but really to feel liberated, I think is to be in a position. Uh, and I think we can incorporate this in almost any position that we're in um, where I can have full faith that wherever I am is exactly where I am meant to be. Hmm. I love that. Thank you for that. That's, uh, again, not one that we've heard. And I think it um, it both continues to provide hope and it keeps us grounded to the present and um, engaged in what's happening right now and what we have in front of us. So thanks for that wisdom. I love that. I needed that one myself today. Thank you. Andrea, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. This has been great. Um, I love what you guys are doing. Um, I'm so honored and flattered to uh, be able to participate in this alongside incredibly impressive women. So thank you so much for having me. This has been uh, a wonderful hour of my life. Oh, thanks so much, Andrea. And we look forward to catching up with you when we're in New York. So we've, we've got all your digits. So we'll be there. We'll be there soon. In the meantime, all you Liberty listeners, thanks again for 
chilling with us for an hour. We so appreciate your time. Make sure to head on over to Liberty Sessions uh, and, excuse me, to libertyforher.com and check out Liberty Sessions for all the show notes, for anything that Andrea said um, that you didn't quite get. It's all there for you. And we look forward to connecting with you guys next week. For now, we'll see you later. Bye. Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty Sessions on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to launch and grow your own ventures. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Wyndham and music by Jordan Flower. 